0: You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Genesis 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. I'm going to pray for us one more time and then we'll dive into it. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, who would later have his name changed to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show to you, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we are here. Um, Help us to be fully present in your presence. I pray that you will right now help calm our souls and our minds and our emotions and fix them all on you, on your story that is true and is the good news to all of life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to see a show of hands real quick. How many of you have ever made a promise in your life? Any sort of promise? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Now let me ask you this. How many of you have ever broken a promise? Raise your hand. All right, again, thank everybody in the room. Um, I remember whenever I was 13 years old, I went to what was called the True Love Waits Conference. If you were uh, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church in the 90s, you probably went to a True Love Waits conference. And basically, it was a purity conference where you would go and you would vow not to have sex before marriage. I remember I was 13 years old when our youth pastor took us, and emotions of this conference were running high because uh, the guy that came up to share with us at the conference basically told us this, that if we have sex outside of marriage, we're either going to get our girlfriend pregnant, get an STD, or go to hell, right? Right? Um, <laughs> Or all three. And so, like, I'm 13 years old, hormones are flying, right? And I am absolutely terrified. And so I'm there with my 13-year-old friends. The preacher gets done, the band comes up, the music starts, uh, you know, the, 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 the lights lower. And, and what they do is they get these ushers that begin to pass out to all of these teenage boys and girls this pledge card that says this, believing that true love waits. I now make a commitment to God, myself, my family, my friends, my future mate, my future children, and all the above, right, to be sexually abstinent from this day until the day that I enter into biblical marriage. That is a big commitment for a 13-year-old boy with all of his teenage years to make. But I was terrified and I loved the Lord and I thought, okay, I'm going to do the right thing. And so me, along with my friends, we signed this commitment and we made it, I mean, just a pact, man, that we are going to remain sexually pure for the rest of our lives. Problem is, like 85% of people that went to the True Love Weights conference, we broke that commitment before we ever even got out of high school. And as I started thinking about that this past week, I thought, man, that is just one example of many times in my life where I have made a commitment, I've made a promise, and I've meant well, but yet I broke that, sometimes because of a lack of integrity, sometimes just because of a lack of strength. Even two weeks ago, I flew out to North Carolina, I promised my wife, I said, I'll be back the next day to get the kids down in bed. And So I booked a flight at 6 p.m. Central Time out of North Carolina, made all the proper arrangements, but because of things outside of my control, because of bad weather, Rather than flying out at six PM, I didn't get to fly out of the airport in North Carolina till one AM. So, right, I, I went bad on my commitment. And I can still point to many examples of that, but the point I want to make quickly this morning is this. As human beings, if we can be honest, we all tend to make promises and break promises. Would you agree? Right? The good news is today, though, is that as human beings, though we all tend to make and break promises, our God, the God of this story, because he is good, right, and perfect, because he is all-knowing and all-powerful, what we will see is that when he makes a promise, he absolutely, every time, without fail, keeps that promise. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to this man, Abraham, And he makes to him this massive, borderline crazy promise. He says, Abraham, I know the world is falling apart. I know it seems like everything has just gone terribly wrong, and it has. But I am going to make this right. Abraham, I am going to, through you, create this nation that will bless other nations so that the world can be rescued and redeemed. If you've been following the story up to this point, you know that when God created the world, he created it good. He created it without sin. He he created it beautiful and harmonious. And he placed Adam and Eve in the center of this world to enjoy this, this perfect, beautiful relationship with themselves and with God and with nature. But in the center of the garden, he placed this tree where he gave them an option. Do you want to trust me or do you want to trust yourself? And Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, as we saw last week, believed a lie about God. They trusted themselves over God. And immediately what happened? Death and destruction entered into this world and now it plagues every single one of us. I was reminded of this this past week. I was walking through a cemetery with Adam. Many of you know that we go to St. Mary's Cemetery every Wednesday to pray, um, just because it's quiet out there and, and and we can be left alone in silence and solitude. And we're out there, and of course, there's all these different, you know, headstones, but there was this one woman that was just recently buried out there, and so, you know, had the dirt mound up over the the new, you know, freshly dug site, and then on top of the dirt were all these flowers that were just dying into Cain. At one time, these beautiful flowers, they're dead, right? Obviously, this woman is dead. I'm thinking about, man, this is all the result of sin, death, disease, destruction. We know it is here because we have chosen to rebel against God, and that is the bad news. But the good news is, in Genesis 12, we see a glimmer of hope. We see God come to Abraham and make to him a promise. He says, Abraham, I am going to make all things right. I am going to rescue humanity. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to like send in paratroopers to like storm the world. Like, you know, like have like a legion of angels, like D-Day version, like take down evil. Nor am I just going to snap my fingers and make this all better. But here's what I'm going to do. Here's my promise, Abraham. I'm going to redeem and restore humanity. And I'm going to do it through humanity, specifically you and your family. What you need to know today, what's so crazy about this promise is Abraham is a flawed man, just like everybody else. This is not like the matrix. When God chooses Abraham, it's not like he like tried to recruit the one, the one person who could make this right. No, Abraham actually was one of the most unlikely candidates to help bring about this promise that God makes here. I mean, God promises through this man, I'm going to create a nation. Well, I don't know if you know anything about Abraham, but he was an old man at this point. I mean, he's a man that, medically speaking, should not even be able to have one kid, right? I mean, things aren't quite working the way they used to. And yet God comes to this man who also has a background of pagan worship, and he says, through you I will create this nation that will bless all other nations. Abraham is not a likely candidate. He's jacked up like everybody else, and that should be an encouragement to you and me today that no matter who you are or where you come from or how much baggage you bring in here, As I've heard one pastor say before, God is famous for hitting straight shots with crooked sticks. Amen? Right? So God can use you. No matter who you are, where you come from, God wants to use you for big things, for his glory. And that's what we see with Abraham. And just imagine, I mean, for one moment being Abraham. I mean, the promise God makes to him here is no small thing. This is an an audacious, ridiculous world-changing, life-transforming promise. And listen, the reason we have to look at it today is, listen to me carefully. If you do not understand Genesis 12, the story of God, especially the Old Testament, is going to be way more confusing than necessary. Because let me let you in on something. From Genesis all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, you know what it's about? It's about God fulfilling this promise in Genesis 12. So in the time that we have together, I want to look at this promise and I want you to see how God fulfills the promise that he makes here and how it has a large impact in our own lives today. And when you look in Genesis 12, here's what you see. That when God makes a promise to Abraham, he promises him a people, a place, and a presence. He promises Abraham a people, a place, and a presence. In verse one, right, he promises Abraham a place. He says, I'm going to take you from this land and I'm going to, I'm going to take you into a whole new land, which we'll talk about here in a little bit as a land that looks like Eden before the fall. And verse 2, he says, I'm going to multiply your descendants, right? I'm going to give you a new people that's going to become a nation that will bless the nations. And then in verses 1 through 3, he says, I want you to make sure you know this is all happening in my power. I am going to give you the land. I am going to give you the people. I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. So there's the promise you have to get today, right? A people, a place, and God's presence. And then God says, Abraham, this is all going to start with you right here and right now. Now, here's the problem. As we just said, Abraham is a flawed man. How flawed? Well, before we even get to another chapter right here in Genesis 12... Abraham and Sarah, his wife, have to leave their home and go to Egypt because of a famine. Abraham is scared that because his wife is pretty, some other men will want to kill him to get to his wife, and so he lies to the prince of Egypt and says, actually, she's not my wife, she's my sister, so you can have her if you want to trade me for something. The prince of Egypt then gives him some donkeys and goats, and he says, okay, here's my wife, also my, my sister. Now, that's a pretty big mistake, can we agree? It's a pretty big deal. If I did that today, it would disqualify me for ministry. And Abraham didn't just do this once. He did it twice. He did it again in Genesis chapter 20. On top of this, God promised him, hey, Abraham, through you, I'm going to give you a child. And through this child, is going to become this great nation. But Abraham gets tired of waiting. He gets impatient and says, you know what, Sarah, you can't give me a child. So you know what, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. God's not doing his thing. So I'm going to go sleep with this maidservant so that we can then have a child and have this great nation which then backfires on him. We don't have time to look at all of that. But the point is, Abraham, you look at many places of his life, and it's like, this guy's a joke. And yet it's the guy that God decides to use. And if you read through Genesis, right, you just fast forward. All through the book of Genesis, all we see is how much sin and dysfunction and brokenness marks the family of Abraham throughout Genesis. But here's the deal. Listen, nonetheless, God remains faithful to his promise. And we begin to see right here in the book of Genesis, before we get to the end, despite all the flaws, Abraham now has a large family. He has a lot of kids who have a lot more kids who have a lot more kids who have a lot more kids. And just as God has promised, Abraham has now been multiplied greatly. But here's the problem. You flip over to Exodus and you see that though they are a large people that is now known as Israel, they have no land, they're in slavery in Egypt, they're not worshiping God, and the person they're enslaved to is Pharaoh, who's the most wicked man on the face of the earth at this point. So things are not going well. However, in Exodus 2:24, it says that God remembered his promise to Abraham. And so God goes to this aging, stuttering shepherd by the name of Moses, who, by the way, is wanted for murder, and says, you're not that impressive, but I'm picking you because whenever I do what I'm about to do through you, I will get the glory for it because people will know it had to be me. And so he flexes his muscles through Moses. And here's what happens. In short, again, we don't have time to look at all of it. But God crushes Pharaoh's army. He crushes Pharaoh. He delivers the people from slavery. He starts moving Israel towards this land he's promised them. And then on top of that, he gives them these plans to build a tabernacle where his presence can dwell amongst them. So here we go. A people, a place, a presence. It looks like things are going well. It looks like we're right on track. There's a couple million people in Israel right? They are able to encounter God's presence. They're moving towards this promised land where they can be blessed to be a blessing. And all Israel has to do at this point, listen, all Israel has to do is trust God and things will go well. But for those of you who have read the scriptures, do they trust God? Nope. They don't. I mean, some do. But as a whole, the whole nation continues to rebel over and over against God. In fact, the most godly leader in all of Israel, King David, who is known as a man after God's own heart, this guy that we celebrate as a hero in our Sunday schools, like one day he goes up on top of his roof, he sees a woman that is naked. It's actually another man's wife. He says, you know what? I've got to have her. So he sleeps with her, accidentally gets her pregnant, doesn't want anybody to know about it. So what does he do? He has her husband killed, Uriah, and then he marries her and says, oh, we got pregnant after we got married. That's one of the godly ones. And this kind of behavior, I mean, it's really sad when you think about it. I mean, God just delivered them from slavery. He then gives them these commandments to teach them how to live a good life. The very first commandment he gives them is, do not have any other gods before me. And then you know what they do? They turn around immediately and create this golden calf and begin to worship it. They say, holy cow, You are beautiful. You are amazing. You are everything. I give my life to you. And God is right there with them. And they say, You know what? We don't want to worship you as our creator. We want to worship this creation. And so God, rightly so, says, I'm done with you. I'm done. I'm tired of of, of making you feel like you have to follow me and trust me, so I'm just going to let you have all of that stuff you think is better than me. But then Moses comes to God and says, but remember your promise. Remember the promise you made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And God says, okay, I'll remember my promise. And so what happens? God stays with them. He continues to show them grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. He starts giving them these ridiculous victories over armies they had no business defeating. And eventually he does bring them into this promised land, which is depicted as a second Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so finally you're like, okay, here we go. Like we're on track now, right? We got a people, we got a presence, we got a land. But does Israel at this point become a light to the nations? Nope. Nope. Because then you get to the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, Israel becomes just like the Canaanites. It says that everyone at this point in Israel's history was doing what was right in their own eyes. They were worshiping the God of the Canaanites. And as a result, God gives them over to their enemies. And they get defeated over and over again. And begin to spiral further and further away from God. Then we come to the book of 1 Samuel. And it's this tragic scene where there's this barren woman named Rebecca who lives in a barren nation named Israel that is filled now not only with wicked people, but wicked priests. And to make matters worse, the Ark of the Covenant, which is like this this thing they built to represent God's presence with them, is stolen by their enemies, the Philistines. So it really doesn't seem like things could get any worse, does it? I mean, everybody's living an open, unrepentant sin, including the pastor's. The Ark of the Covenant has now been captured, which therefore looks like that God is no longer living with Israel, but He's living with their enemies. But then, Samuel is born into the story. And this guy named Samuel, he's a final judge. He's a prophet and he's a priest to Israel. And eventually he anoints this very young shepherd boy by the name of David to be the king of Israel. And though this king is imperfect, it is through David that once again Israel is established as a kingdom under God. David then has a son named Solomon. Solomon builds this beautiful temple where God's presence can dwell. And the land begins to experience more peace and more prosperity than ever before. They begin to look more like Eden. But then our boy Solomon became girl crazy. How, girl crazy? He took 800 wives and 300 concubines for himself. Which, by the way, people's like, the Old Testament supports polygamy. It has a lot of polygamy in it, but if you watch, every time someone takes more than one wife, things always go really, really, really bad. Okay? And so the Bible does not use all through there, but it never ends well. Same thing with Solomon. He takes all of these wives. With these wives come pagan worship. Solomon eventually dies, and the kingdom is torn in two. The northern territory, which is known as Israel, becomes so wicked that God wipes them out altogether. The southern territory, which is Judah, where Jerusalem was, has some good and some bad, but eventually they're judged by God, taken into captivity and exiled into Babylon. Are you kidding me? So now Israel has no land. The temple is torn down where the presence of God dwelt. The people are scattered and it appears as if God is no longer going to keep his promise. Have you ever felt like that before? God, you promised me this was going to happen. And yet you look at your life and it seems like he's forgotten whatever it is that he has promised that he would do. That is exactly where Israel is. But just as it appears that all hope is lost, God begins to raise up these men known as prophets. And through these prophets, he says, one day, Israel, I'm going to bring you back into this land. And through you, listen to this, here's the promise. Through you, one day, one will come with healing in his wings. And he will create this new covenant where you will have a new heart and you will be able to know me and serve me in the way that you were intended to all along. We're going to talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. Not going to talk about it anymore, but here's what I want you to think about as we try to come in for a landing today. That's the whole Old Testament, by the way, okay? So, um, here's a question I want you to consider. Why didn't God just get a new people? You ever thought about that? Like, why didn't, he don't need Israel. Look at them, they're pitiful. They just get in the way. Why doesn't God just get a new people? Or why doesn't he just snap his fingers and make all this better? Why doesn't he just destroy the earth and say, I'm, I don't even forget it? Why? Because God always keeps his promises. And in Genesis 12, he made a promise. I will redeem humanity through humanity, specifically through Abraham and his family. And then in Genesis 15, we don't have time to look there, but Genesis 15... God then binds himself to his promise. He does this weird thing. Actually, it's it was common practice back then. But he tells Abraham, I want you to cut these animals in half, and I want you to create this bloody aisle. This is something many people would do back then. Basically, if, if I made a covenant with you or you made a commitment with me as a, as a way to say let's uphold our end of the bargain, we would cut animals in half, and we would walk down together as a way to symbolize if I break my end of the deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And so God says to Abraham, I want you to do this. Create this bloody aisle, but then in a dream, listen to this. God goes and he walks through the aisle by himself. As a way to say to Abraham, I know that you won't hold up to your end of the bargain, but I absolutely will hold up to mine, even if it means I have to shed my blood in order to fulfill my promise. When God makes a promise, when he makes a covenant, it is no joke he does not take it lightly and listen we have to get that today because we are such an uncommitted people we make promises and commitments all the time that we never have any intentions on fulfilling i did premarital counseling this past week with a couple and i've come to a point appointment. i do premarital counseling like i basically think my job is to talk them out of getting married and it's like if they still want to get married after that then they're probably meant to get married But one of the things I tell them is, listen, when you get married, you're not just doing this so like you can like say like, ooh, I need a cook or I just need someone I can have sex with legally or right? like like, like you're getting married as a covenant to say no matter what, whether you are rich or poor, young or old, sick or healthy, sagging or not sagging, I am going to commit the rest of my life to you. That's what, thank you, amen, that is what a covenant is. I know that we don't have a royal couple in America. I'm guessing uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce is probably the closest we have to that. And uh, I don't know, if you, I don't know if, you've, uh, if you knew this. A few years ago, they got tattoos underneath their wedding rings to symbolize their commitment to one another. And in one of Jay-Z's songs, he has these lyrics, and it says this. Even if the rings come off, this ink don't come off. And here's what ultimately Jay-Z is saying, okay? What he is saying is this. No matter what we fight about, even if we want to take our rings off, even if we want to be unmarried, I am going to stay committed to you because this ink does not come off. In other words, what he is saying, listen, this is probably the best definition of a covenant I've ever heard, is I will be to you as I should be, even if you aren't as you should be to me. I will be to you as I should be, even if you aren't as you should be to me. Now, I don't know if Jay-Z will hold true to his commitment, but I absolutely know because I've read the entire story, God absolutely stays true to his commitment. He says to Abraham, listen, I don't care who you are or what you've done or what you will do. Even if you are not faithful to me, I will be faithful to you and Israel. And that doesn't mean that Abraham and Israel doesn't have any obligations. It doesn't mean there's not consequences for their actions. But when God makes a promise in Genesis 12, and he confirms that in Genesis 15, what he is saying to his people is, I will be to you as I should be, even though I know you will never be as you should be to me. No matter how bad things can get, this ink will not come off. I will absolutely be committed to you. Because I love this world, because I'm committed to redeeming it. Even if you're unfaithful to me, I will be faithful to you. I absolutely, 100% will fulfill this promise. I want to just end with a story. In 1988, um, there was this massive earthquake in Armenia. I think it registered like 8.2 on the Richter scale. I don't know if y'all remembered, it killed like 25 to 30,000 people, destroyed the whole city. And out of all this brokenness, there's this beautiful story that centered on the relationship between a dad and his son, Armand. Every day when this dad would drop off his son for school, he would say the same thing to him. He'd say, son, I'll always be there for you when you need me. Every day, drop him off for school. I'll always be there for you when you need me. Well, whenever the earthquake took place in Armenia, like all of the parents, Armand's dad rushed to the school to see if he could find, maybe that just by chance his son had made it through. And when he got to the school, of course, I mean, it was just this huge heap of just concrete and metal. And so Armand's dad, what he did is he actually began to get up on the stuff and do the best he can to remove this concrete, to remove this metal. And, and, and people would basically, they try to stop him. And they'd say, man, they're dead. There's no hope. They're lost. We're not going to get them. Even firefighters were like, sir, go home. Like, we'll, we'll take care of this. We'll let you know if we find him. But he basically just looked at him and said, hey, you can just sit there and complain if you want to, or you can help me dig. And so people would try to help him dig, but then their muscles would get tired or aching. And, and so this dude dig, true story, he dug, right? Two hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours, 10, 12 straight, 14, 16. The whole time he's digging, he's yelling out, Armand, Armand, Armand. Just yelling. He's just like, you know, hollering. Eventually, dude digs 38 hours straight. And on the 38th hour, when he yells out, Armand, he hears this little boy say, Dad. He rushes over to where he hears the sound. He pulls up this concrete, and there is his son. And they find 13 other boys who were rescued that day from the school. What's amazing is after this was over, a reporter asked Ramon, what did you think whenever you heard your dad's voice? And here was his response. He said, I told my friend, see, I told you my father wouldn't forget us. That is a perfect picture of the God of the Old Testament. And that is why it is so long. Because as humans, we're so stinking stubborn. But our father is a loving father who does not give up on his children. That's what the entire Old Testament is about. Maybe you're here this morning, you feel like your life is in shambles. You feel like you're broken beyond repair, and as a result, God has given up on you. Listen, if you have breath in your lungs, nothing is further from the truth. Maybe your spouse has given up on you. Maybe your children has given up on you. Maybe somebody from your church in the past has given up on you, but I can promise you, God absolutely has not given up on you. And if you ever doubt that, all you have to do is look to the cross where you know what? And we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. God would be cut in half for you. Jesus, God in the flesh, would come and he would walk down that bloody aisle. He would go to the cross and he would shed his blood for you. Not because he didn't keep his promise, but in order to fulfill his promise. To do for you and to do for me what we could not do to redeem us because we could not redeem ourselves through his perfect life, death, and resurrection.